Revelation chapter uh, 20. Um, let me just read to you uh, first 10 verses. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed, uh, and locked and sealed it over him uh, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because they worshipped and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image or, and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Uh, blessed, are the blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Uh, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who uh, deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where, uh, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented a day and night forever and ever. Okay, um, let's do a little bit of review. As we, as we come to this, um, hopefully you, you understand that the book of Revelation uh, tells the same story in a number of different places. We, we can know this for certain. You get to the end of chapter 11, and the end has come. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of chapter uh, 12, we see uh, this lady who's pregnant and about to have a child. Well, that's Christ. And uh, Satan ready to devour him up and... And all these things. So, so we see um, that Revelation does retell the story from different angles. Um, now, some of the some interesting things um, about it is it talks about um, the uh, counterfeits. Um, Satan has his counterfeits. Satan wants to take the place of God, so he would counterfeit himself as God. Uh, we see the beast out of the sea, uh, who would be the counterfeit Christ. Uh, we see the beast out of the earth, uh, who actually becomes the false prophet. Uh, he performs miraculous signs. Uh, we see him as the counterfeit uh, Holy Spirit. And so you've got these counterfeits, a counterfeit trinity to the, to the real uh, God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see a counterfeit church in Babylon, which is the kingdom of man as opposed to the kingdom of God. We've seen Babylon back in Daniel where um, we, we see it coming up against Jerusalem. Jerusalem representing the kingdom of God. Babylon, the kingdom of man. And it seems that they defeat uh, the kingdom of uh, God there. But we know that's not the case. 
um, Babylon, we see him come up once again here. And instead of being a, a bride, as the church of Christ is the bride of Christ, we see um, that Babylon would be a, the whore, a prostitute um, of the kingdom of man. We see uh, these presented to us in, in what's called chiastic, 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 anyway, fashion, where in, in chapter 12 we see Satan introduced. In, chapters, uh, in chapter 13 we see the beast, the false prophet. Chapter uh, 17, we see Babylon uh, introduced. And then in reverse order, we see the destruction of these. We see Babylon being destroyed in chapter 18. Um, and the people are to rejoice as a, as a result of this. Uh, a couple of things happen here uh, that, that we actually see as a result of the, the people following God's instruction to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon is that uh, the, the, uh, the saints are, are uh, the revenge has come on those who have uh, prosecuted the saints. They have uh, been, a, uh, you know, is taken care of. They're being martyred. We see them being martyred in chapter 6, verse 11, where the martyrs from under the throne say, how long must we wait before, um, before this is all made right? And God says, wait a little while until, until the full number of the martyrs come in. Right? I've got a number of those who are going to be martyred the way that you have. When that comes in, then uh, everything will be made right. We see that happen in chapter 19 as a result of Babylon falling. We also see something else interesting at the fall of Babylon um, is that there is a great uh, a marriage feast. We see the marriage feast of the Lamb coming in with the destruction of Babylon. We see this in the, at the beginning of chapter 19. Well, chapter 19 goes on, and we see in chapter 19, towards the end of that chapter, we see the beast and the false prophet the uh, description of that where the uh, birds, birds of prey are told to come in and they will feast on the, on the horses, they'll feast on the generals and they'll feast on all of the people and it's, it's almost um, an exact picture of the description of, the, of what takes place in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Are you with me? Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about this, this battle that we see at the end of chapter 19. And the description is the description that we find in Ezekiel 39, where the birds of the air, the birds of prey, are told to come in and feast on these horses and these generals and all the people who have died as a result. It's, it's, uh, if you look in, in uh, cross-references in your Bible in, in Revelation chapter 19, you will see that. Uh, and then in chapter 20, in chapter 20, what we see is Satan 
the destruction of Satan and uh, his defeat as a result. So you see, it's a fashion that goes like this. Introduction of, of these and then in reverse order, their destruction. Scripture uses this type of outline quite often. It's not an unusual thing to see this sort of outline used in Scripture where it'll, it'll have something introduced like in an ABC fashion and then it will come back to it in CBA. It's just a, a, a technique that is used quite often in Scripture. So we see the introduction and the destruction. Now, <coughs> we uh, looked a couple of three weeks ago at some, some things that happened. At the end of chapter 19, we see that the uh, kingdoms of the world with their kings and all their people have been deceived to come and do battle against uh, Christ and his kingdom, and they are defeated. And then uh, there again, that, de that defeat is, is expressed uh, with these birds of prey coming from Ezekiel 39. And they are destroyed. They're done away with. They've been deceived by the beast and the false prophet. They are thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet, all of those who are there. So these kingdoms that would rise up against God and his kingdom are gone. Okay? Now we see in chapter 20, we looked at it and we see that Satan is, is bound um, from deceiving the nations. And you have to ask, what nations? They've already been dealt with right here. They've been destroyed. Why would Satan be bound from deceiving them? They're gone. Doesn't make sense unless this is a retelling of kind of the same picture from a different angle. The retelling of the different picture is that we've dealt with the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of the beast, and the false prophet, and the destruction of Satan. I, I'm saying these are different angles at the same event. We also see in uh, chapter 20 that the battle that, that comes up when Satan brings these nations whom he has been let loose to deceive once again, he brings these nations to do battle against God, and that battle is called the battle of God and Magog, right? Where else have we seen this title, Agog and Magog? One other place in Scripture. Ezekiel, what chapters? Ezekiel 38 and 39, which describe this battle. It says explicitly that in chapter 20, this is the battle. They're both looking at fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm saying because of at least these two things, I think that this is a retelling of the same events that we see here and here. We're seeing the same event here, except that he's dealing with the destruction of Satan, the, the major party and the... Uh, what's the word? The counterfeit, the major counterfeit the last one to be destroyed in this in the way it's shown here. Now, if we're going to think this, as we read this, there becomes some questions and you begin to say, can this actually be the way that this is supposed to be understood? 
and I think it is, but there's some things that we have to understand in order to understand it in this way. Uh, and so with that in mind, we're going to look at two things tonight. First of all, we're going to look at the, the, the idea of a thousand years. What's that all about? Because uh, it's mentioned several times in this passage, even though it's the only chapter in the Bible that talks about this thousand years. It is dealt with several times in this chapter. So we need to see what could possibly be the meaning of this thousand years. So let me let me ask you. If you were to say that there is a book that is more symbolic than any other book in the Bible, what book would you suggest? Book of Revelation. More highly symbolic. More symbolic than any other book in the Bible. I think everybody would have to agree that that is true. Revelation's it. Some others almost rival it, especially when you start reading Ezekiel and, and, and uh, maybe Daniel and things like that. There's a lot of symbolism there, but especially in the New Testament, Revelation is it. It's, uh, it's highly symbolic. <clears throat> and um, so, you know that numbers are used symbolically in Scripture as well. Revelation's no different. It uses numbers symbolically too. So I want us to look at how the Bible, apart from the book of Revelation, uses uh, the number a thousand, okay? And so I've got a number of places here uh, for us to look at. Uh, let's, let's get some volunteers to look these up. Deuteronomy 111. I got that one. Okay. Joshua 2310. Okay. Job 9-3. Okay, Dave. Psalm 5010. Okay. Song of Solomon 4-4. Okay, thank you. Um, that ought to, well, and then, and then we'll look up the one passage from the New Testament that we have here. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 8. Okay, I'll get that. All right. And we skipped some there, but you'll get, the, you'll get the idea here, okay? Deuteronomy 1, 11. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are in blessing as he has promised you. Okay. Okay. Is that better? Yes, and here is May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. Okay. Um... Is, is, it, is he going to limit it to 1,000? Is that the idea that it seems to be indicating here? May the Lord make you a 1,000 times greater than you are, right? Is that it? He's going to stop it there? I think he's probably using, I've told you a 1,000 times, right? <laughs> told you enough times. Well, this seems to be that, thousand would be even even greater than that and I think we'll see that as we get, go through and look at some of these other passages Joshua 2310 
Okay, if the Lord our God's fighting for us as he promised, are we limited to battling a thousand? <laughs> or is that a number that's saying there is no limit to the power of God? And if you're in his army, there's no limit to it, right? Seems that it's used symbolically there in Deuteronomy 1.11. Joshua 23.10 seems to be used symbolically. Job 9.3. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. <laughs> okay. So, somebody contending, I think it's with the Lord, right? It says if you're going to contend with the Lord, you couldn't even answer him once in a thousand times. But if you go over the thousand, you're certainly going to be able to answer him, right? That's not the intention that is there. It's, this number is used to say... You know, this this is this is all that there is. You know, basically, um, Psalm fifty verse ten. For every beast of the forest is mine; the cattle on a thousand hills. How many cattle does God own? All of them. <laughs> but if they're not on those thousand hills, <laughs> if they escaped His possession, no. The idea there is that it's used for the fullness of it, right? Song of Solomon four four. Thousand shields on the neck. That's kind of <laughs> kind of a lot. Well, but what's the idea there? He's talking about the beauty of a, of a woman, I think, and it's expressing it and how lovely this is. And just thousand shields. I guess beautiful shields hung on hung on the neck here. You know? um, doesn't really mean to stop there, does it? The idea that a thousand is just. This, this is the, the, the number of fullness of the beauty that is expressed here. Um, did we get Ecclesiastes 728? No, we didn't do that. I think it, I think it skipped to 2 Peter. Okay, we just skipped down to 2 Peter. Okay, I'll get 2 Peter. You can look up these others if you want. You're going to see the same thing. Thousand is not used to mean to be, you have to limit it to a thousand. But the idea there, there's, there's completeness. All the, all the cattle on all the hills are God's. But he says cattle on a thousand hills. So anyway, 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Here again, he's not, uh, I don't think, intending on being... Um, uh, so literalistic. Um, I mean, we're, we're understanding that God exists in eternity, right? And the idea is that the fullness of time is consumed in Him, even in a moment of time. And so, even in the use of this sort of language, we see it. David Chilton, I got a quote from a guy named David Chilton here. He says, uh, as the number seven connotes a fullness of, of quality uh, in biblical imagery. Number 10 contains uh, the idea of fullness of quantity. In other words, it stands for manyness. Uh, a thousand multiplies and intensifies this. A 10 times 10 times 10. 
in order to express a great vastness, fullness. Uh, and you could even say, I think we could say it's fullness. And I think um, if you look through all of those, I don't know, how many, how many did we list there? Eight or ten uh, different passages in Scripture where we see the, the term thousand used. I think you can see that it is used symbolically uh, throughout Scripture to indicate fullness or a great vastness, uh, a completeness, if you will. It's, it's not probable, uh, uh, is it not probable, I ask, is it not probable that the most symbolic book in the Bible which uses it, in which numbers are used symbolically throughout, that the number thousand, which is uh, used symbolically throughout Scripture, would be used symbolically here? That's my question. Maybe not, but um, I'm persuaded by the position that claims that thousand years used in Revelation 20 is symbolic for a complete period of time between the ascension of Christ and the second coming. Now, uh, I hope that we're going to see this more. You'll, you'll see and understand more why I, I believe that uh, as we go along. But just to say, I, I, it's certainly, I don't see how you could say it's out of the question when a thousand is used symbolically throughout the rest of Scripture uh, in this way. And Revelation is very symbolic. Okay, well, um, that kind of, I think, would help us in understanding if this is just a retelling of this battle that goes on here, how we can deal with thousand, a thousand, right? Has to do with this period of time. However, we run into a, a kind of a difficulty here when you think about what is going on during these thousand years. It says that um, about Satan, uh, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, he's bound for a thousand years. Now, if I'm saying that this thousand years is the time between Christ's ascension and his second coming, that means it's going on right now. This thousand years has to do with time period right now. Um, how is it that Satan's bound? Especially, who, who knows what uh, 1 Peter 5, 8 says? Right off the top of your head. Devil huh? come, goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yeah, Satan's like a roaring lion going around seeking whom he may devour. Uh, Peter's telling us quite clearly that Satan is an enemy to be dealt with right here and right now. If Satan's bound, why do we have to worry about him like Peter is warning us about? Well, <clears throat> we need to look at this, don't we? Um, notice that it doesn't just say Satan is bound. Um, look with me in verse, uh, verse 3, first of all. Uh, which one? Verse uh, Revelation 20, verse 3. <clears throat> it says, he, he binds him and he threw him into the abyss and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. What's his binding all about? Can't deceive the nations. Pretty clear. Can't deceive the nations. His binding is about him not deceiving the nations. Look with me in verse 8. <clears throat> um, go back to 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out 
to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Again, what is his binding about? It tells us two places there. His binding is to keep him from deceiving the nations. Now, our basic rule of uh, interpretation is that the Bible interprets the Bible. Is there any place else in all the Bible that talks about this type of binding of Satan? Well, there is. There's actually two passages. They're in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and they're both talking about the same situation. So let's, let's look at those. Um, Matthew chapter 12. Someone else look up Mark 3 passage with verses 22 through 27. In Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to get it in context, so I'll be, begin reading in verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that, all could, uh, uh, so that he could talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus knew their very thoughts. And said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then uh, can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then, you, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, and here is the important thing. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house? Okay? Somebody have the Mark passage? Go ahead. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay. What are some names for Satan besides Satan and the devil? Or maybe some other names? Lucifer. Lucifer. Huh? The deceiver. You ever heard him called the prince of the power of the air? Yes. Uh, he's head of the kingdom of darkness, right? Be the king of the kingdom of darkness. Interesting thing when... Uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Um, that third temptation where he takes him up on the highest peak and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says to them, it's mine. I'll give it to you. You just got to bow a knee to me. Remember? How could Satan say that to him? 
this mind. It is his. It was his. This was his house, right? When Jesus is talking about... Um, when Jesus is talking about entering into the strong man's house, whose house is what, what's the house? Earth. Earth. Who's the strong man of that house? Satan. Satan. The strong man of that house, right? Jesus saying, I've come to plunder that. <laughs> In the garden, man abandoned his, his rights. He gave it to Satan. Satan has had those rights. I've come to take it away from him. What must I do in order to take it away from him? Bind him up. First. First. First, in order for me to do this, I've got, in order for me to plunder his house, what's he talking about plundering his house, by the way? Going to set free all his servants. <laughs> he is going to set free his servants. How is he going to do that? Isn't the gospel going to go out? The gospel is going to go out into all the world. Right? What does he have to do first? He has to bind up the strong man. The strong man has been able to deceive all this time. But he's going to come. He's going to bind him up. So that these people are no longer have to be deceived. All the world won't be deceived anymore. He binds him up. And it's quite an interesting thing, I think, in Acts chapter 1, where the disciples come to Jesus at his resurrection and said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Jerusalem at this time? He says, not for us, not for you to know. Times and hours the Lord has in mind here. But, I think he answers them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I think he answers their question. What's Acts 1-8 say? Who's got it by memory? You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. If we're going to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem and, uh, some, and, all, and some, uh, all Samaria, all, Judea and all Samaria, and into the ends of the earth, what's happening to Satan's household. It's getting plundered. We're, we're taking his stuff. And he can't stop it. He cannot stop the spread of the gospel. My thought of what's happening to Satan in Revelation chapter 20 during this time period, this thousand years, is he is bound, he can do nothing about the spread of the gospel until the end of this time period. And God says, all right, I'm going to let you go a little while now. And then there's going to be this great deception. And the kingdoms of man are going to come up against God's people. Let's, let's look at some other places. I want you to notice um, some more about this. Uh, notice how the New Testament speaks of Christians being set free from Satan's kingdom, which is the kingdom of darkness, and becoming members of the kingdom of God. Um, let's just... Uh, somebody get Acts 26, uh, 17 and 18, and somebody else, who'll do that? Yeah. Okay, in Colossians uh, 1.13. Okay. 
Okay, read, read the Acts passage. These other passages are the same. So same kind of idea here. Go ahead. What was the verses? Uh, the second part of 17 and verse 18. second part of 17 may start a paragraph there. I don't remember off the top of my head. To whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What were they bound in? Darkness, right? We read about the kingdom of darkness. They've been bound in that, but but, uh, Jesus is telling Paul there, I think Paul's relating uh, uh, Jesus' message to him, so I'm sending you so that you can release them from that bondage. He can't stop you anymore. Gospel's going out. Okay, uh, Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness Okay, he's talking again about what Jesus has done. He's he's plundering Satan's kingdom, plundering the kingdom of darkness, plundering his house. He has taken us from that. He's stolen us away and placed us into his glorious kingdom. Each one of these passages you see there uh, relate to that. Now I want you to notice one one more thing. And uh, uh, the results of Christ binding Satan... Uh, in the following verses. Uh, Dot, you're still in Colossians. Read Colossians uh, 2.15. Okay. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, the cross. Right. So he he has triumphed over him. He's made public display of them. He has defeated him. And he is, in a sense, making public display and you know when armies would make public display of their uh, defeated enemies, bind them up and march them through the streets in a parade, right? Sort of thing. Hebrews uh, 2, 14 and 15. I got that. Okay. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, so he has defeated Satan. For, and, and, and in defeating Satan, what's he been able to do? To deliver up, how did, it, how did it say? And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Yeah. We're in slavery to, to Satan. He's taken them away from them. They're no longer his slaves. No longer part of his house. He is plundered. He is plundering his household. And 1 John. Does anybody already have that? 1 John 3. Um, verse 8. It's <clears throat> um, the second part. Uh, I'll go back up to verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, uh, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. And he can't stop him. He's plundering his household. I think these are just a, a, a sampling of verses that you could look uh, about this through. And so... 
in Revelation 20, verse 3, and verses 7 and 8, as we already see, the binding of Satan is uh, a binding that keeps him from deceiving the nations. Because Christ has come and he has won the victory. He is plundering his household. Satan cannot, can do nothing about it. The gospel is going forth. Um, and Satan can really do nothing about it. But it does state in Revelation 20, verses 3 and verse 7 and 8, that at the end of these thousand years, uh, the end of this time, towards the end of this completeness of, of this, this time, Satan will be released from his bondage for a little while. Uh, upon Satan's release, he will go out and deceive the nations to gather them uh, for battle against Christ and his church. This will be the battle of Gog and Magog. Uh, verse 8 uh, also is the battle foretold in Revelation 16. We see it there. We see it uh, at the end of chapter 19 as well, which I think is is uh, foretold as well in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So what I'm seeing from Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 20 is that Christ's victory is sure. Um, the end is judgment and wrath from God. It's not form, but from God on Satan and all who follow him. No question. He, he, is, he is defeated here at, at the end of this time. Uh, after he is set loose, um, seems that he would be able to make a strong, uh, deceiving uh, influence on so many that they would be willing to uh, come up and do battle uh, against God and his church. Okay. Well, that's uh, we've got a couple more things I want us to talk about from Revelation chapter 20. Um, we will do that uh, again next week. We're going to talk about the scene. What is the setting of Revelation chapter 20? Where, uh, uh, where, where, where is it that John is seeing this take place, especially in regards to verses 4 uh, through 6, um, where there are these thrones set up and uh, the, the martyrs are ruling together with Christ. Where is this taking place? I think we're going to see that. And then um, the other thing is we're going to talk about the... Uh, uh, the first uh, resurrection and the second death. So we'll talk about those things in two weeks, <laughs> not next week. So are the battles of Rob and Magog also uh, symbolic or real? I, I don't know that it will be a physical battle. Um, there certainly is going to be a spiritual battle. This scene is taking place in heaven, uh, which we'll get to next week. This, the scene that he's seeing here is, is a, a, in a spiritual realm, but it is about the destruction of Satan and these, these sorts of things. Um, I, I don't know that we're going to take up arms and uh, have the Apache attack helicopters coming after us and those sorts of things. I don't, I don't think that's the way we're, we, we're to look at it. But I do think it is a spiritual battle. I think he will be able to deceive many in the nations. I, I don't want to be saying that today is the end days because people have been saying that forever. But it does seem that more and more nations right now are, are uh, being uh, influenced by Satan. 
and we see it certainly in our own nation. I don't want to make our own nation, uh, a lot of nations have fallen in the past who might not have thought they did. Yes? church in China, uh, India, Africa, places, it's, it's exploding. The gospel is, is really exploding elsewhere. And uh, in, in the midst of tremendous persecution, it is exploding. So uh, there certainly is that, but there does seem to be, and, and the reason, part of what I'm saying here, there does seem to be governments more and more, kingdom of man coming up in opposition to Christianity. Where they're not in, in opposition to other religions. I mean, for some reason, they're uh, lauding uh, Islam, you know, or, um, uh, you know, if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or anything else, you're okay, but if you're a Christian, you're not. You're bad. You know? uh, and I don't... I don't think I'm getting that just from the United States. I think I think we see that almost worldwide, yeah. where persecution uh, of the church seems to be growing. And um, it does seem to me that, that I'm starting to ramble, but it does seem that the, the, the church will grow and grow and grow, and that when Satan is, is released, the church is, is growing and expanding. Then there comes this battle, the kingdom of man trying to destroy the church. So that—that's—that's that's my way of, of seeing it. So there's there's very optimistic stuff about it. The kingdom of God's expanding, and then there's this idea that the kingdom of man is here to fight it, and there is going to be a battle. It may look like we lose, but we're not. <laughs> Where does all this rise and, for lack of a better way to put it, garbage theology fit in in the last X number of decades? You know, we have people like um, in Houston and um, Bethel Church and all of these people that engage in mysticism and basically 
optimist psychology and all of that. Where does that fit in? Is that part of the attack on the church? Or Satan's ability to deceive? Yeah, I, I would have to say that that's, you know, that's, that's part of it when we see things like that take place. The whole prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. and yes. you're, you're getting wrong. I mean, that is deception. This is what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about my being wealthy. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Uh, you know, our, our Savior went to, to his death and he he's told us that we would be persecuted too. The book of Revelation is for those who are enduring persecution. He's telling the church throughout this whole period of time, you are going to be undergoing persecution, tribulation, hardships. It's going to happen. But the best thing is Christ wins. And so I, I do think that that would, would be just another way to, to say it. Okay. The prosperity gospel, if it's funny as you follow the Christian, the prosperity gospel grows as Americans have gotten richer. <laughs> like it started actually, the Pentecostal would say it started out of the Methodist church in about 1880, 1890. And it really took off after the Yazoo Street Revival yeah, in California. But if you follow it from where it's grown, for instance, when I was a kid, if you were Pentecostal, you were the Holy Brother and everybody said, Well, but now it's really booming. But if you look from 1950 to today, that's probably our greatest growth in materials. It certainly seems to be that the years that the prosperity gospel, as it were, started to rise and the teachers became more popular and prominent. Yeah. So, all right. Let me uh, let me pray for us, Lord. We 